This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Clap, clap your hands and stomp your feet. You're listening. You're listening to the Clap Your Hands Podcast. Hosted by Elliot Shore Parks and Kyle Newbeck. Here they come. What is going on, everybody? This is the Clap Your Hands Podcast Playoff Edition. Blowout Game 1 Edition. Sunday morning edition. We got early morning Kyle in the house, but... Honestly, Kyle, I wouldn't blame you if you're tired because yesterday for you was just a master class in basketball knowledge. Like game one played <laughs> out. It just played out exactly how Kyle Newbeck said it would. Uh, I mean, really from start to finish. And then even uh, as we were joking before the pod, your boy Derek White killed it yesterday too. So uh, hey. a good day, a good day for Kyle, a good day for the Sixers. Really just everything you could have hoped for all around in game one. Listen, I feel for, you know, 9.45 on a Sunday, I feel pretty energetic, honestly, yeah. because that 1 p.m. game, oh, my God, what a what a delight that is. There, we're in the locker room at, like, 3.45. <laughs> I mean, come on. You can't beat that. That's just well, – I don't think my, people uh... understand, like, on the, the from the fan base. It's like, I get why people don't like the afternoon games. They have other mm. stuff going on gotta hit home depot for your home improvement <laughs> stuff whatever but like for me to be essentially out of the arena by 6 p.m is just so beautiful well so last night uh i mean it was supposed to rain and ended up not so me and um me and kristen went out uh to get something to eat on passiunk and it was crazy like we're sitting there eating dinner it's probably i don't know 7 30 or so and it felt like the Sixers game was three days ago at that point. And I think <laughs> partially not only because it was a one o'clock start, but let's be real. Like they dominated that game. There was really no intrigue or drama to come from that game. We'll get into the James Harden thing a little bit. That seems, a, you know, maybe the only kind of things where, where people are torn on. But big picture, quick, I, I'll just kind of kick it off. Like I, I thought throughout the game, um, and by the way, they put me up in the JV press box. I had to look down at you in the in the big boy basketball press box the uh, the whole time. What a but shame. What a shame. I will say it's a better view up there for what it's worth. Like I can see the, the court better, but that's just me emotionally rationalizing to myself. But <laughs> um, so anyway, I thought that although the game, it felt like it was seven or eight points, you know, sometimes it would get to 10. It would get like the whole time it felt relatively close until the end. I didn't think there was a single minute or even second of that basketball game where I thought to myself, oh man, the Nets might win this. Like it was close for a stretch, but you know, I saw like people on Nets Twitter tweeting, this is a game, they have a chance. No, the Sixers had complete control of that game the entire time. And then they pulled away in the fourth. So I thought in terms of just big picture, what you wanted to see from game one, 
You talked about it, how it, game ones at one o'clock could be uh, dangerous. I thought it was like a professional win by the Sixers. Well, I think that to me is the most important takeaway yesterday. Like I'm assuming at one point in this series, it's the reason I didn't pick a sweep is that I think there'll probably be a game. They let their guard down a little bit and Brooklyn will do enough to probably steal a win from these guys. But I think it was really important that this team took the week off. They got healthy. They came into this game. That's a little bit of a trap game. 1 PM to open the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And they just blew their doors off. Like Brooklyn had an amazing shot making game. It's actually the single best or so is the single best shooting performance a team has ever had in a loss in the playoffs. And if you look down the list of like a lot of the biggest or the best shooting performances and losses, most of them are like, you know, six point loss or eight point loss or whatever it is. They're like fairly close games. This game was not even close. And so I think for Brooklyn to execute a good game plan against Joel Embiid, to have an incredible shot-making game, and ultimately lose that game by 20 points and Jaden Springer and the bench guys are in at the end of the game, that's got to be so demoralizing for those guys. And you already have oh, – look, I know this is part of the gamesmanship in the playoffs, but for Jacques Vaughn to already be at the press conference at the podium crying about yeah. how it's being officiated, that is like – you already lost the series, man. It, that's you turn to that in like game three or game like when things are really going off the rails. The, I, Joel, how he was officiated yesterday, had absolutely zero impact on that game. So yeah. to be grasping at straws like that is just like, man, these guys had their one of their best shots they can offer, and they just got absolutely blitzed. Well, to your point, it had to be demoralizing because the first half, Mikel Bridges comes out and is playing well. Another thing you predicted, predicted, which I think is absolutely true and played out, the Sixers, like Mikel Bridges to me, watching him is a player where you just let him cook and the, he'll average 27 points next year and they'll be playing in the play-in tournament unless they make some type of significant change to their roster. You saw in the first half, Mikel Bridges was playing well. People on Twitter were reacting like, oh, he's going to keep him in this blah, blah. And then the Sixers just decided in the second half, all right, Mikel, you're not scoring anymore. And that was that. Like, I think he, I think I read in your piece today, maybe he got two shots up in the second half uh, yeah. and only scored, you know, five or six points or something like that. But I thought the other big picture takeaway for me from that game was not just a discrepancy in talent, because let's be real, this team is way better than the Nets. But I thought two things really stood out. And it's one game, you know, not to go huge big picture here. But this team is such a better shooting team than it was in past seasons. They set the, I believe, franchise record for three-pointers made in a game with uh, 21, if I'm not mistaken. And they're and not they got, I think, like 48 up. Like that, to yeah, me, yeah, is yeah. almost as important. One of the big problems for this team, like in the Warriors game, we talked about it a lot. The Warriors got up a ton of threes. They want to say they got up like 50 threes against the Sixers. Mm-hmm. And that was the difference when Joel scores 46, but it doesn't matter because the three-point margins were what they were. So for the Sixers to open the playoffs and say, we're comfortable shooting 48 threes in a game, like that to me is a big deal just on its own. I agree, especially when you think about who these who the, the team's perimeter players have been in past playoff series. And look, we've talked about it a lot, but I think after this game, it's especially important to bring back up. They used to have a point guard in Ben Simmons that literally wouldn't shoot any threes. Yesterday, James Harden took 13 three-pointers, right? And then you just go down the list. Like Tyrese Maxey's a better player now than he was certainly two years ago against the Hawks and a better player than he was against the Heat. He's three for five for, from three. Tobias Harris, three from 
three for three. PJ Tucker, two for five. Like Niang comes in, two for four. They just have so many people on the roster that they can count on to not only be willing to take a three, which is a big leap coming from like a Ben Simmons, Markel Fultz era of basketball, but to make them. Like they have, they are a great three point shooting team. And it's especially important when teams play Joel like they did yesterday. So the three point one to me, but also, and this is kind of piggybacking off the three pointer. They're just so much deeper than they were in past years. And it's one game. It's against the Nets. Who knows against Boston how these bench guys will play. But they just have so many more people they can go to where the game is not cratering when their starters aren't in. And really, Paul Reed, uh, certainly, you know, the Paul Reed game took place. But, yeah, I just thought the three-point shooting and the and the bench from a, from a full team perspective were my biggest takeaways uh, from the performance. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, to piggyback off of that, I just think the thing that you're most encouraged by if you're the Sixers is that they have this good offensive performance and nobody had to step outside of their role, right? Yeah. Like all these guys just sort of, we're in our spots. We're going to space the floor. Joel gets doubled. He swings the ball around the perimeter. James was taking catch and shoot jumpers when they came to him. Like that to me is as, as big a deal as him hitting a bunch of pull-up shots. Like the fact that he was willing to just, I have an open catch and shoot jumper. If teams are going to double Joel, I got to take it or I got to make the right He's decision. He's been pretty good at, at that this year. He seems yeah. very willing to do that this year. Yeah. Yeah. But so the point being like all of these guys simply just played their roles. Like they understood what they needed to do in this game. And they understand that, look, if the Nets are just going to sell out against Joel, I don't need to do anything crazy. We don't have to go off script. We've planned for this. I know where, where I need to be and what I need mm-hmm. to do when I get there. And so they just look like they were prepared for all this, which one reflects well on the coaching staff and the scouting they did coming into this series, the prep work they were doing, and certainly reflects well on the players. And then on top of that, I just think they played harder than Brooklyn. Like yeah. I, I know people were worried about, oh, they're the younger, more athletic team and all this stuff. But I, I gave the rundown several times in written and podcast form they were not a good offensive rebounding team. They are not an up-tempo team. So the ways they were going to hurt the Sixers or that the Sixers have been hurt historically were not really going to show up. And not only that, the Sixers killed them on the offensive glass. They were great in transition, just ran them to death whenever they got stops. And they like look, that was a comprehensive performance from the Sixers. And there were moments in that game where they didn't shoot well early and they still were out in front in the lead, maybe because they just had more talent than Brooklyn. But yeah, I mean, there's so much you can say about this that's to the positive. And I think this is a game like this is why, not to get too carried away, that I just feel better about this team this year. Like Mm -hmm. they're just a better, more complete team that has more ways to beat you. Well, you've been saying this all year. And I think, you know, like Harden gets the headlines because of the game he had, but also because of the debate around him, the three-point shooting gets the headline. To me, it's Joel Embiid as to why they were able to dominate that game. And here's why why I think that. Because 
I think if they, if like three years ago, a team plays Joel like this, where they're constantly blitzing him with the doubles and they're constantly making him get the ball out quick. A, I think you see him get frustrated a lot sooner. I did think in the second half, there was maybe a five to six minute stretch where he looked a little frustrated, but outside of that early on, he seemed ready to your point about the coaching staff. Like he knew to expect it and he handled it perfectly. So I think in some ways it's a game where, you know, like why quarterback win loss record to me is an important stat because sometimes you look at a quarterback stats and it's like, well, he didn't really do that much, but he controls the entire game. I thought Joel controlled that entire game from the jump, like his willingness to pass early. I thought set up the shooting, his just maturity about it, set it up, still finishes with 26 points. It's not like, you know, he had 12 points or whatever, but I just think when you talk about why this team is different and why Joel is different, I thought yesterday was such a perfect example of it because they don't win or maybe they win it, but they don't dominate it the way they did yesterday. If they played this game a few years ago, in my opinion. No, like I a hundred percent agree because the terms of that game were set by simply having him on the floor. Brooklyn, mm-hmm. very clearly their goal coming into the game and into the series is we're not going to let Joel Embiid beat us. Well, okay. You're going to give up 45 open threes if yeah. that's the case. And look, I said before, in game four against Atlanta, it was a great example a couple years ago of the difference between Joel now and Joel then. That game, Joel shoots 0-12 in the second half against Atlanta. They lose that game on the road. Was ended up being a pretty pivotal loss in that series. And the worst problem was not that he went 0-12. It's that he got tunnel vision and that he was like, I want to go against doubles and I want to play through traffic and dribble at these guys. And, and yes, he had a couple of those moments, but by and large, he felt and knew those doubles were coming and said, that ball's getting out of here. And, and I do think if Brooklyn looks at the tape, they might see, look, you might have to time the doubles differently. You let Joel get set a little bit. Maybe you let him dribble and then you pinch on him versus like they're trying to double him on the catch. He's just seen that too often yeah. now. Like he is far enough into his career. If you double him on the catch, he now is not just immediately putting the ball on the floor and leaving himself susceptible to turnover. So I do think the Nets will probably be smarter and a little more well-timed with how they double him moving forward. But even still, like then if you give him a gap, if he attacks quickly, then he's getting to the rim. Then he's getting fouled. Then he's scoring, you know, 35, 40 points. So there are not a lot of good options against him. And I think it's a great example of how MVP does not always mean you're filling up the box score or you're right. scoring 50 points. Sometimes it means the other team's attention is so focused on you that everybody else is able to have a good game. Like, I don't, how many assists did he end up with yesterday? He didn't even like, end up with that many, I don't Like think. three or four probably. Yeah. yeah three it felt assists. like all game though, he was picking them apart. Right. I think if you went and looked for like hockey assists in that game, he probably has double digits there. And I think just the the offensive process that they had was really good for most of that game. And that to me is more important than, you know, if Joel had eight assists, it's not that like the game he played would have been any better. Well, and the, the good thing for the Sixers is too, is now the only adjustment the Nets can really make, and look, they could just stick with it. And if they do, I think Embiid will keep playing it the same way. But if they do adjust, then you really just mean the ball is in Embiid's hands more. Because either the double is coming a little later, or they're they're going to, frankly, maybe not double at all, in which case Joel is just going to absolutely cook. So I thought it was, from that perspective, a great uh, game one from Joel. And I think he deserves more attention than he's probably getting for that performance. Um, but the person who is getting a lot of the attention, 
James Harden. Uh, so I don't know. Do you want to go first on Harden? I I have my opinion of his play, but but what do you think uh, from from Harden? No, I think he was really good. I, I won't go as far as a lot of people did yesterday just because the finishing inside the arc was so bad. I think there were some plays that Brooklyn just made good defensive plays. Like Dayron mm-hmm. Sharp had a really good uh, chase down block on him in the half court that that's when you just tip your cap to the defender and say that's a great play. You know, otherwise the finishing was bad. And he acknowledged that after the game. But look, I think you also see some of the ramifications of doubling Embiid in Harden's game yesterday, right? Like he's a guy that against a, a set, like just everybody plays their man-to-man defense. He'll pick you apart as a passer. If you're going to double Joel and use Harden's guy to double him pretty often, giving James the space to operate as both a shooter and a playmaker is really, really dangerous. And, uh, you know, Doc referred to him as like a catcher in baseball on Saturday. Yeah. He said he essentially called a perfect game. And so I do think the decision-making was awesome. Like, I don't care as much about the pull-up shooting. Like, that's going to come and go. Those are difficult shots. But to see him at least confident in himself and his body, he obviously is feeling good. That was really important. And the number one thing to me, you know, people get wrapped up in the who the backup center is during these minutes and what the plus-minus is for them. But James and that second unit, being able to succeed and outright win minutes. That is maybe that's at least a top three to five story for the team in the playoffs. Cause we've seen like, even when Joel has been poor on offense, they've won his minutes in the playoffs and they almost always lose because the second he hits the bench, it's a total disaster. And I think the biggest difference between early in the year bench minutes and late in the year bench minutes is not that Paul Reed is playing, It's that James Harden is the guy leading that group. And he said yesterday after the game, I asked him about this, like what the difference is. He's had input on like who's going to be on the floor, who's around him, what they need in order to succeed in those minutes. And so I think Doc has sort of made him a partner in setting up that group. And clearly you can see that he's comfortable within that group now. Like they all have their roles. They have enough shooting between you know, Melton, McDaniels, and Niang. They have enough defense between Reed, McDaniels, and Melton. Like, they they kind of play off each other in nice ways. Now, Niang, I think, is going to be a sore spot moving forward. But if Harden can be that guy and lead them in successful minutes without Joel on the floor, I think we would both agree. Like, Joel and James together, they're winning those minutes. Like, they've won 100%. those minutes from, from the moment they made that trade, even when these guys had – you know, no chemistry or no immediate chemistry to speak of. So if they can at least draw even in those minutes, like that makes this team a potential title team, period. So I thought what happened with Harden yesterday is something you see like in a lot of sports media. Um, And I'll use myself as an example. Like, let's say going into an Eagles game or whatever, like all week I've thought, man, they're like, like Hertz is going to struggle against to pass the ball against this defense. And because I think that going into the game, the bar for me to like accept that he's looking good is higher. Right. So I think with Harden, people went into this game yesterday saying, how's his athleticism going to be? What's he going to look like? Da, 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 da. And because of that, he had to be like almost extremely explosive the entire game for people to sit the back and go, Oh, well actually he did look good. So to your point, I think when I watched him yesterday, again, from my 800, foot view in the press box (laughs) I I thought he looked great 
physically. Like, I thought yeah. he got to the basket pretty easily. There were a few times Mikel Bridges had him. You would think Mikel would be the exact person that he would struggle against if he was limited physically. Mikel, by the way, in person, Mikel Bridges, very long arms. Like, he is – you can see why he's – Oh, it's like, like Inspector Gadget. With dude, the, it's uh... insane. It literally reminds me of Durant just in terms – I mean, he's not as big, but just in terms of seeing someone and being like, holy shit, that person has long arms. But – so anyway, Harden, when, when he has Harden on the perimeter, you would think that's something he would struggle with. I thought there were a few times Harden got right by him. And so, yes, he needs to finish better around the rim for sure. But I would have been more concerned if the shots he were getting at the rim – where like, you know, like floaters because he couldn't get all the way up or stuff like that. He got to the rim. He just missed. To your point, there were a few plays I thought that they were just great defensive plays by the Nets. Now, maybe you could say if Harden's able to get up a little higher, they're not able to make those plays. I think that's maybe a, a fair question. But in terms of the three-pointers too, no, he's not going to make seven every game. He's not going to shoot seven for 13 or whatever it was. But let's not act like he didn't shoot a really high percentage all year. He shot like basically 40% on almost it's his best shooting season basically ever. Yeah. Exactly, right. So he's not gonna make a, he's not gonna make seven a game. But if the Nets plan, or if we're gonna look forward, you know, to Boston or whatever, if the plan is like count on James to make a bunch of threes, it's tough for any player to do. But ultimately, James has shown this year he's a great three-point shooter. So I leave that game feeling awesome about James, and I don't really get any of the hesitation in some ways from people of saying like, man, he didn't look that great. I thought this was almost the best you could have asked for from him. Yeah. I mean, look, it's ultimately kind of nitpicking saying, Oh, he didn't finish well at the rim getting there and being able to beat their length exactly. at the point of attack yeah. is very important. Um, not that I think Dinwiddie is included in their, uh, their length or their good defenders <laughs> no. department, no. but sending him to the shadow realm with that one crossover was awesome. And yes. I feel like he's missed a ton of those shots after crossing guys over this year. So it and was nice to see him hit one shots to make like, you know, like the, you, you've, you've dropped the guy. Everyone's waiting. I feel like those are deceivingly tough, tougher shots. Yeah. So it's nice to see him get one of those. He also, I want to say he drew two different charges yesterday. So, you mm -hmm. know, Defensive stopper James Harden in the yeah, building. Yeah, he had a good possession against Mikel at the end of maybe the first half or something like now, that. Now, look, he also got killed by Mikel for most of that end of the first that half was the period. Plan. So, that was the plan. But, let him cook. But too. yeah, like, look, I, I think that should give you some optimism regarding James. I think he was really good. Mm -hmm. um, whether he's going to be able to score. 30 in a game where they really need him to still kind of up for debate because again, you do have to score inside the arc in order to beat the best defenses. Like they will sell out on you as a shooter and not mm -hmm. every team is going to be hard selling out on Joel at the elbows and playing like auto doubling him every time. Like I, I even Brooklyn, I don't think that's going to be the plan for the entire series because I think they'll look at the tape of game one and say, we gave up like 45 open threes and right. we can't really afford to do that again. So they will need James to be a more dangerous um, downhill isolation type guy. But I, I think some of it is you trust the process over the results here. Like I think he showed more than enough to say, okay, he's feeling pretty healthy coming into the playoffs. And like, that was to me the, the only real concern coming in was, if James isn't right, then they don't really have a chance to win. Him looking good enough physically, even if the finishing was not uh, perfect, I think mm -hmm. that's more than enough to say, all right, they're on the right track and he's on the right track.
I like you dropping a nice little trust the process in there. It just, it, it never to, goes man. away, you know? Um, so I have three guys that I want to talk about and we'll kind of get through them quickly to wrap this up. Um, so one for me, I mean, you can just start and take your PJ Tucker victory lap. Like yesterday was exactly why you give him. I wouldn't say I need to take a victory lap because I've been skeptical of him recently. That's fair. As well. That's I fair. Say That's that. fair. But, but I feel like you kept pointing out, and I think it's true. Oh, well, actually, we'll take the victory lap together. It'll be a clap your hands victory lap of just saying the, the playoffs were where he was going to, where it was going to matter. Like, that's where you're going to find out he's cooked or not. I think you tweeted this yesterday. Like, he came out of that game looking like he was shot out of a cannon. Like, oh, as if crazy. As if he would just, as if all year he's just been saying, all right, I'll just kind of coast and not blaming him or ripping him and saying, like, come playoff time, I'll be ready to go. He comes out, he gets an offensive rebound, I think, on the first or second possession. He gets two or three in the first half. He makes his first three-pointer. Like, he was everything you wanted from just the glue guy that's going to do all the little things. I think it's a perfect example of the the, uh, the stat sheet not showing the impact a player had on the game, much like Joel. Thank you to producer James for putting P.J. Tucker victory lap I mean, in big letters at the bottom, by the way. Yeah. This is why you have to watch on YouTube. You got to see the uh, the updated titles throughout the game, uh, throughout the pod by James. But no, I thought PJ Tucker was was. I mean, like if they get this PJ all playoffs, yeah, they're going to be a really really hard team to beat. Yeah, look, that was that was like a million dollars of the ten million dollars they paid him, and right game there, exactly. Today. I I I just think. I have been skeptical recently that he's going to be able to stay on the floor against good teams. I don't, I still don't know if I'd call Brooklyn a good team. Uh, no. So like maybe player. the jury's out on that one, but I think a lot of the things you'd say about the gap in competitiveness and, and effort and rebounding, a lot of that comes down to PJ setting the tone. Right. And mm-hmm. one of the other things, and he said this in the locker room on Saturday, one of the consequences of double teaming and doing things like that to stop one guy Offensive rebounds are going to be there. There are going to be opportunities to to slip between the cracks as guys are scrambling, trying to find their man after double teaming somebody. Open shots are going to be there. He only made a couple yesterday, but a couple of made threes for PJ is great. And I think the more important thing, I keep harping on volume for these guys, but PJ taking tightly contested threes, including the first one he made, it's like hand in his face. I think that was the, the tightest contest he shot against this year. That, to me, is a great sign. That's somebody who's confident, who's saying, I don't give a shit if I've had ups and downs during the season. I'm going to let it fly. This is my job. Joel's getting doubled. Like That plays into the point I was making about these guys understanding their roles and embracing those. And I just, look, we also heard that PJ was cursing out Paul Reed at halftime, saying, <laughs> we need more from you. You got to do this. You got to do that. And Paul Reed comes out in the second half, and he's putting on – and one mixtape moves after offensive rebounds. And so, you know, I don't want to give PJ Tucker all the credit for that, but, but this is who they brought him here to be, yeah, right? The guy who's they need from him. the guy who's mixing it up, the guy who's hitting people hard on the boards, who's, you know, just making those backbreaking soul crushing plays that the Sixers felt firsthand. Like, look, we can argue about the talent between the two teams last year and Joel being hurt and this and that, but, Joel said it after the series, like we don't have guys like PJ Tucker who make these plays that not only are they impactful and that they give you an extra possession. It's also just like, man, this fucking guy again, like he really (laughs) did that to us. He really snuck his way past a bigger, younger, more athletic player. Like what is going on here? 
And I, I think you just see how this guy in his late 30s was able to command 10 plus million dollars a year because he just shows up when it matters. And by the end of that game, Brooklyn wanted nothing to do with him. Like they just, mm. they flat out gave up late in that game, including the guys who were brought in the reserves who had something to play for. Like, yeah, put me in the rotation coach. <laughs> Fucking PJ's out playing those guys too. It was yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, he was, to your point about earning a million dollars of the 10 million, if he can be the reason they get to the finals or even the conference finals, you could argue he'll earn almost the full value of the contract, like just in terms yeah. of the 30 million. So he'll be an important player. Um, all right, so Paul Reed. Tell me why Paul Reed isn't just Nick Claxton with less minutes or Nick Claxton isn't just Paul Reed that gets to start. Like when I watched him yesterday, I Nick Claxton was nowhere to be seen. He seemed completely invisible. Paul Reed, I actually thought made an impact on the game. Like I was extremely impressed. You touched on it a little bit, but what they got from Paul Reed yesterday was, was everything that Sixers fans have been waiting for from the backup center spot. Well, so Nick Claxton suffered because Spencer Dinwiddie might be the worst lob thrower in the oh, history of basketball. He, yeah. he threw four lobs yesterday. I think they were all four of his turnovers, maybe all four of his turnovers. I have to double check. We're on lob passes that I don't think the tallest person in the history of mankind would have gotten to. <laughs> um, so I think Nick Claxton was hurt by that. Like he got into some good spots and then Dinwiddie just missed them. Yeah. Um, Look, Paul Reed is not at that level as a consistent switch defender. Claxton has been a really, really, really good defender. Not just this year, but last year he was coming on. And I mm -hmm. think with a better team around him, he ends up looking better. I think at times yesterday, he slowed Harden down early in that game. Like he's part of the reason that Harden was struggling to finish inside the arc. But here's what I will say. I think Paul has certainly improved down the stretch and in very meaningful ways too, right? Like I, he didn't hold up great on switches yesterday, but he has been very good as a switch defender down the stretch, has been more disciplined. There's less stupid fouling. There's just less mm -hmm. nonsense from him. And on offense, I think he's been a revelation over the last couple of months. I think part of that you credit to Harden, who's finding him in these spots, at the dunker spot, on the roll, around the basket, and he's hitting them. So all Paul has to do is go up, dunk, lay up, whatever it is. But Paul helps himself too, right? Like crashes the offensive glass and has the uh, the blessing of the coaching staff to do so. That's a very important thing. Like some teams, they just tell you to pull back and you're not allowed to do that. I think the coaching staff sees this is a real skill, a real ability Paul has. And they let him go and he just kills teams on the glass. He's probably the best offensive rebounder on the team, certainly in this series and his finishing at the basket has been awesome. Like that yeah. highlight he had yesterday was ridiculous and like it probably goes wrong nine out of 10 times. And he just happened to be the 10th time and succeeded yeah. yesterday, but the actual finishing, I mean, he shot over 60% from the field for like four straight months now. And so this is a guy that has figured out his niche on offense that defensively has the tools and, has shown the promise of a guy who can be a maybe not a one through five defender consistently, but maybe a situational one through five guy. There are very few one through five guys in the league, but just the fact that they can play a switching scheme and say to him, look, Paul, we trust you to defend, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie for a couple possessions here or there, or Mikhail Bridges here and there, or however that's going to work. And 
I, I mean, I would make the argument at this point that unless he really goes off of a cliff, that there should not really be a lot of small ball PJ Tucker at center minutes in the playoffs because yeah. they have not been able to defend with those groups. And I think Paul has shown he's valuable enough offensively and helps them enough at both ends that you should basically just ride that group as long as you can. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was, again, everything Sixers fans have been waiting for. The last thing I have for you, we'll, we'll touch on this quickly, and then uh, I know you got to get to practice today. So the only maybe kind of not ideal thing I thought yesterday was Tyrese Maxey. Maybe I'm, I'm fishing and I'm looking for something. Um, 13 points. Uh, I think he was three for five from three. So, you know, obviously that's that's good. You'll take that. But I don't know. I thought early on he wasn't great. He missed a layup. What would you think of Tyrese? As long as he makes threes, he's doing his job. Like this is the way they're playing it. This is a series where that's just going to be his role. Like he's not going to be a heavy on ball guy. Now, if they, if they change how they're defending Joel and things are a little different than, yeah, uh, they're going to need more from him as a transition player. I think is that's the biggest difference he makes for the starting lineup is the speed and the pace he offers them on fast breaks. Like that's part of why, putting him back in over Melton made a lot of sense. You can see their transition offense just like skyrockets when Tyrese yeah. is on the floor and their transition offense was very good on Saturday. So I'm not too concerned yet, but I will say if we're looking forward and saying maybe Brooklyn is a, an omen for how a Boston series is going to go. We, we yeah. know that Tyrese has struggled mightily against Boston all year. I don't know that I saw a ton of like, oh man, he just can't get by people. There were just some issues finishing at the rim. And he was more a part of like, look, he only took eight shots yesterday. Mm -hmm. And and part of that is because they're in those swing, swing situations where if the closeout or the rotation comes to him and somebody's wide open in the corner, he's got to get rid of it. The ball's got to keep moving. And so I think he's sort of in the same line of that we were praising Joel for he wasn't really just holding the ball up or saying like, oh, this is my shot. I'm going to hit a step back or something. It's we're going to hunt the best possible shot. And he was part of that process as both a shooter and a passer. So no big concerns yet. Defensively, some issues at times, but yeah, not nothing crazy yet. Look, they won by 20 points and he was right. three for five from three. Like that we're really nitpicking if we're saying that's a big concern. Well, I guess I'll wrap by saying this. A good game plan, a well-executed game plan, a game plan where everybody just stayed within themselves and didn't do anything despite the team. Sounds like a good coach team. So game one of that, you know, the Doc Rivers uh, victory tour, I guess, commences. Um, So, all right, Monday night, game two. Um, It's kind of lame they even have to play three more games. It just feels like a no-win situation for the Sixers. You (laughs) just have to, you just have to, like, get out of here healthy. Uh, So, Knock on wood uh, with that. So well, so here's a quick take on that. I think in the first round, if you go up 3-0, the series should be over. Mm. No, no, no for it. Because people want to go to a five-game series. I don't like that in the sense that I, I can appreciate the longer series. But I think if you go up 3-0 in round one, that should just be the series is done. Save I mean, look, the time. I- I love the extreme take. Let me ask you this. How many games, how how long would the series have to be for the Nets to beat the Sixers four times? I was debating this yesterday. Like Pretty long. 16? <laughs> I mean, if they Pretty tried long. every single game, like I legitimately think it could be in the 30s, but you know, who knows? But all right, game two Monday night. Um, 
We'll definitely have a pod for you after. Who knows? Maybe we'll talk before them. But ultimately, hopefully the Sixers get another win, get this thing taken care of, and uh, then Kyle heads to Brooklyn and we'll hear about his travel stories. So um, thank you, everybody, for listening. As I said, as I have said before, if you're not an auto-downloader already, hit that auto-downloader download button on your podcast app. You get the episodes quicker, you get them faster, and we're going to have a lot for you throughout these whole playoffs. So, Kyle, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you guys soon.